Now, the more I had them interact with each other, and especially using some strategic grouping, if I pair some of my highs with my lows, which is an ELL strategy, that's what you want to do, you know, pair your more intermediate and advanced learners with your beginners to give students that opportunity to really notice hey, this person that's my age is able to say this sentence like this. Huh, I know I've heard Miss Mattis say it before, but it makes more sense coming from my peer. Okay, I'm gonna practice that. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. I want to start this episode by thanking everyone for the great feedback on part one of our conversation with Anna Mattis. The topic of collaboration between EL and LOAT or foreign language teachers is one that Anna and I feel is underserved, and we were really happy to hear that many of you agree with that. So before continuing on to part two, I wanted to take a moment to remind you that you can join the conversation anytime by leaving us a rating, a comment, or even a voice message if you're listening on Anchor. That's a really interesting feature of the Anchor app. If you're on iTunes or any other platform, you can feel free to leave a comment. We'll begin including listener feedback in season three, so go ahead and let your voice be heard. And now let's get back into opportunities for output, productive struggle, motivation, and more with Anna Mattis as we continue our conversation about collaboration between EL teachers and LOAT or foreign language teachers. Let's get started. You stress this targeted low stress opportunities for output. I'd love to hear some examples that work in both LOAT and EL settings. What are some of the major differences there and what are some of the similarities in the strategies that we can use? Absolutely. So a lot of it has to come back to the context that we're teaching in, right? And it's interesting that if we talk about input for just a half second before we talk about the output. Absolutely. Go for it. In a world language classroom, right, is those world language teachers, they are the mecca of information of providing copious amounts of comprehensible input to the classroom. Anything Well said. Right? Mecca of information to provide copious. That sounds you like what you do every day. Continue. Sorry, I had to, I had to highlight that. Highlight that. Write that down. Um, because if you think about it, and I'm just going back to my context and you're going back to yours, there was no place outside of the community in the Aldine School District where I taught for students to be able to go speak with a native French speaker, right? Or to look up a menu in French. So anything that my students had to do to receive that input, it was either A, me providing it within the walls of my classroom, or B, them getting the tools online to go explore, to mm -hmm. do Google searches, to listen, um, maybe to find some interactive classroom settings, or me as a teacher, maybe finding a teacher in Quebec or in France and, you know, setting up some kind of an online interaction or a forum for my students to practice. In an ELL setting, that's 
absolutely different. You have input in the classroom, but the input is right outside the walls of the classroom. Your child might be in your second period ESL class, and the very next class they have to walk into is social studies, where they have yeah. to do a debate, you know? You know and and uh, just put to pause for a sec, I, I used to sort of, to kind of to stress the, like, the, the importance of, of the two groups collaborating. I like that. I craved that. I wished so much that my foreign language students would walk out into the hallway and then have to go to the cafeteria and order their lunch in Spanish. That was like my dream so that they would actually have a context and motivation for learning. So like, it's important to understand, you know, where both people are coming from in terms of the educational opportunities that they're providing. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Yes. So and one more similarity between the two, if we're talking about the, the output, right? We are strong advocates of sentence stems for both contexts. And sentence stems, if you're not already using them, they can be scaffolded. It doesn't mean that every single time a student responds, it has to be with the use of the stem. But if we're talking about our beginner learners and our intermediate learners, they're going to have so much confidence if they know exactly what that output needs to look like. So as a teacher, why not? Why not give them that? as an instructional aid, as a resource. And then as they build in their fluency and their comfort with the target language or English, you can scaffold that and take that away. And so that's a that's a definitely a similarity between the two. I've mentioned negotiated input just a little bit. And so it's this, another theory of language acquisition. Sometimes it's referred to as the interaction hypothesis. And basically what it means is if you have a language learner and a native language speaker in the room, there's going to be a gap in their understanding, right? That's given that one's mm -hmm. gonna have more knowledge and confidence than the other. But they have to struggle, and I put that in air quotes, to make meaning. That's how language is going to develop for the learner. It goes back to Krashen's I plus one theory a little bit. You have to meet a learner where it's at, but give them a, a piece of whether it's text, whether it's a verbal conversation, that's just slightly above their level of comprehension so they can notice that gap. And that's what happens when you have a native speaker and a learner together trying to negotiate this input. So the difference comes in, if you're talking about a low classroom, the majority of the students in that class are going to be of a really similar proficiency. And I don't know what it was like in your classroom, Steve, but it definitely was in mine. Yeah. I had a lot more students that were the same level with maybe one or two outliers that were really high achieving and hyper comfortable in the language. But most everyone was at a similar proficiency. So I was the only one. And again, I'm going to put this in air quotes, native speaker, because right. I'm not. But I was that only source of input for them to really understand the struggle. Now, the more I had them interact with each other, and especially using some strategic grouping, if I pair some of my highs with my lows, which is an ELL strategy, that's what you want to do, you know, pair your more intermediate and advanced learners with your beginners to give students that opportunity to really notice hey, this person that's my age is able to say this sentence like this. Huh, I know I've heard Miss Mattis say it before, but it makes more sense coming from my peer. Okay, I'm going to practice that. Yeah, you know, and I'm glad you mentioned that sort of at the end that this person my age can say this in the peer uh, piece because I think that leads to the idea of motivation and making it relevant. So I want to dive into, into that because I think that like I, I've seen students in my own classes and I've certainly talked with people about it in, the, in an ELL context um, talking about the motivation that comes from just you know young people wanting to communicate with one another 
So that being said, I'm curious how that, how does that motivation play out and how does it, how it might be different in a load versus an EL classroom? Absolutely. I think this is motivation might be the most important difference between the two. You know, the most, and maybe not even important, but the most significant difference that teachers of both contexts really need to understand what's driving these students to learn. Because once they understand that, Steve, I think they're going to be able to match their craft with the motivation levels in the room. So let's start with the, the low context. I would say that a majority of students that are in a foreign language classroom, they're there because they want to be there or they choose to be there. You know, sure. You're going to have those students that miss I'm only in here because I wanted to be in football and it's seventh period and it doesn't work with your class. So I'm here. Yep. That's, that's a given. And so you, they, that kiddo might be a struggle and you might win them over, but you, you know, you're going to have more students that want to be there. Now, I found that, again, my outliers were those students that felt comfortable and engaged and relaxed to experiment. You're not going to have a big of a struggle of motivation with them. The second group, they're going to be hyper, hyper nervous and have anxiety with the language because in your foreign language or sometimes even ELL classroom, that's the first time that a teacher is going to force you, I'm putting that in air quotes, force you to speak out loud. You can't learn a language without those opportunities to practice. And so I think if teachers understand where the students are coming from, what their day looks like prior to them actually walking in the room, they're going to get a bigger sense of, oh, this is why my student is a little bit more hesitant when I'm asking them on the spot to say something in French or German or Spanish. Because mm -hmm. they may be coming from a school day where they're okay just sitting and listening to a teacher or doing group work or doing partner work but not being asked to really produce on the spot, much less in a language that is not their own. So right. that's a factor um, for the low classroom. Now, if we shift that and look at an ELL classroom, it could be much, much, much different. It's state mandated for our language learners that are beginner intermediate that they are in an ESL setting, right? And so they didn't choose to be in ESL, because they answered a question when they enrolled in school and they found out that their home language isn't English, most states say, okay, you're going to need targeted, supported English instruction to do well on our state-mandated test. Therefore, you are in first period ESL. So that already kind of shifts the motivation of why those students are in there. Um, again, some of them could have a really high motivation to learn. A lot of that depends on their background, and you and I know that. Yep. What, is the pre, what is their educational experience in their home country? What are their literacy levels in their home country? What's the motivation level and education of the parents? Oftentimes, that could be a big draw or a big push or the exact opposite. So that's going to affect the, the motivation of the students. But Oftentimes, some students are going to come to that classroom and it's their refuge and they're going to be expressive and only open up to you as their ESL teacher, or they might come to that ESL class as a refuge and absolutely dread it and put their heads down again because of those factors that are completely outside of the control. So that's kind of how I think motivation really affects the students. Yeah. And I think to tap into that motivation, you know, again, it comes back to getting to know those students, understanding where they're coming from. I like that you mentioned um, that, you know, some students coming into either classroom really could be coming from a place where they can kind of just sit and get. Now I have my own sort of opinions on 
that in terms of education yeah. in general, but that's another podcast episode for another time, <laughs> another topic. But it, but it's true that students, especially in high school, can kind of go through the day and, and sort of absorb information or not, but don't have to express themselves. And then when they get into a place where it's a foreign language classroom, like you said, not only do they have to express themselves, but they have to do so in a different language. I think that's the same in many ways for uh, for an EL student. Right. So tapping into what motivates them, what makes them tick, you know, personalizing, differentiating, um, you know, I, 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 has obviously a huge impact on sort of increasing the motivation and getting those students to, and again, I'll air quote it as well, sort of productively struggle in ways that are going to make them fill in those gaps. Um, you know, just understanding the students and who they are is so crucial. Absolutely. And, and you brought up a really good point, which is part of that motivation of why they're sitting in that classroom. It might have to do with this is survival. If they're brand new newcomers, yeah. they need that information that the ESL teacher is providing versus if they're simply viewing your Spanish class or my French class as an elective, they're going to come to that classroom every day with a completely different attitude. And it's really our job to win them over you know, and to want to be motivated to learn and to give them those opportunities to really thrive in the language and fall in love with the culture. Definitely. Culture. I'm glad you just mentioned that. That kind of leads me to my next question, which is, you know, we've talked a lot here about language. We've covered a lot of, uh, a lot of ground. What about culture? I mean, how, how, how should teachers effectively infuse cultural input into their lessons? Um, and how is it different in both groups? Sure. So culture, I think, is really the piece that, that puts foreign language teachers in the foreign language classroom that gives them a little bit of an edge. If you think back to your Spanish learning experience, Steve, and I think back to my French learning experience, I'm not going to remember the exact grammar lessons that I had or the dialogues that me and my neighbor had to create, but I'm going to remember those awesome pieces of French culture that we got to learn about. For instance, National Crepe Day, when we got to learn, why is it that crepes are such a popular staple of French cuisine? And why do we as students get to spend a whole day making them and feeding our school with them? It's those really fun pieces that teachers can use to their advantage and really flip them into opportunities for language learning. So one of the big pieces of, as your question was, how do we use culture to provide comprehensible input? It comes from authentic resources. Authentic resources are those that are made by native speakers for native speakers. So I don't, I hope I don't get shot by textbook companies out there, but oftentimes you may know this, dialogues and DVDs and things like that that are created for a textbook from a big publisher, those are fabricated situations. Contrived, right? completely contrived. I'll say it. I have no problem saying it. Yes. <laughs> I mean, they're completely contrived and they don't work and students see right through them generally. Right through them. Good. We're going down on this boat together, Steve. So <laughs> Exactly. If it's fabricated, then a student's going to say, Miss, I'm never going to see myself in this situation. Why do I have to do this? And it's going to decrease that motivation. Versus if you let students go and you give them that freedom and that autonomy to explore, but you're kind of the captain of that ship, there's a world of knowledge in the target language that's available online that they can access. And so, for instance, something as simple as a Google if you're the teacher and you're trying to find menus or hotels or maybe even um, text for students to explore, don't type in google.com, search for French resources. You want to go to google.fr or google.de if you're the German teacher. 
and I'm glad you're mentioning because I'm I'm amazed at how many people just don't don't know about that. And it's not nobody's fault. It's just not, it's not something that's really taught when you're in pre-service or when you're learning or even in, in PD. And just those, that's how you get those authentic resources. And students don't know that because teachers don't know that. Because teachers don't know that. Absolutely. And you have to think back to how it is that teachers are prepared. If they're not coming out of, say, an MA program, because it's, it's, I feel more, um, master's programs are going to have a specific focus on foreign language teaching than a bachelor's programs. And there's not a specific curriculum development that our new teachers are learning. They are a learning how you and I did, you know, this is what our French teacher did. This is what our Spanish teacher did. So this is what I'm going to do. Or B what happens a lot is welcome to the class. Here is your teacher manual. Here are your student textbooks. Sounds familiar. plan is due at my desk by three o'clock every Friday. Good luck, Miss Mattis. And there you go. And again, you're just on your own to create that. And so you oftentimes, all teachers, every single teacher in this country struggles with too much on their plate. They have to lesson plan. They have to look at data. They have to think about differentiating for every single learner in their classroom. Teachers really should get paid more. Um, But so it, it kind of reduces for some of us that time and that effort that we can put into searching for these really amazing sources of authentic input. So I think the more that we can empower our students to do that and show them, hey, why don't you start searching Instagram profiles that are coming from French students, your exact age, see the language that they're using, go ahead and put yourself out there, start interacting, maybe find a classroom in France with another teacher that's trying to look for American students and they can play Kahoot together or do a, you know, a virtual Skype so they can see each other. I think we're into this really prime time right now where we could really use technology as our asset for getting those sources of culture in the classroom. Yeah, no doubt about it. I think that that's, you know, you bring up some really good points. And I mean, I think I was definitely guilty as many are of like when I was thinking about how I was going to go about teaching these new Spanish students that I had, Spanish as a foreign language students, I sort of said, well, you know, how did my teacher do it when I was a junior or senior in high school? And looking back on that time, I, I don't think it was even extremely effective the way that I sort of learned a language. I was just kind of drawn to it. But you have that thing in the back of your head where you just, you kind of, you, it worked for me, so I'm going to do it this way. Um, and that's just a whole mindset thing that we really need to shift away from, especially given all of the resources that you just mentioned and the ability that we have to really access the world. Um, you know, I just don't think it's necessarily happening uh, enough yet. But I do see, you know, the optimist in me, I see um, folks like you and lots of others really um, putting the resources out there uh, and trying to get people to collaborate more with one another so that we can maximize impact on all of our students. I mean, the majority of what we talk about in this podcaster uh, are English learners, but here we're talking about language in general. It's just such a breath of fresh air to hear about these things that are happening and these ideas that you have. Absolutely. All of our students, they're ALL. They're all language learners. And so I think- That's an acronym I can get behind. Do it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, uh, Anna. So as we wrap up here, um, one of the things we like to ask everyone that comes on the podcast is uh, if there is a book or a resource that has influenced you um, either personally or professionally in your life that you'd that you'd like to share with us. Absolutely. So my first professional resource, and not to sound cheesy about this, Steve, and I promise I'm not purposely plugging this, but honestly, if you've never read the original Seven Steps to a Language-Rich Interactive Classroom and you're a teacher of ELLs, it will blow your mind. So 
I'll plug it if you don't. So okay. don't, I, I totally agree. We're good. We'll neutralize each other. <laughs> more of a, a personal perspective, I feel like you heard me say a lot in this past hour, I brought up the idea of the struggle. So I'm a really big fan of writers and pieces of, uh, of literature, you know, where writers embrace the struggle and they talk about their personal stories and how they worked through it and learned through it and were able to transform and move forward. So I am a huge fan of Brene Brown. I don't know if you're familiar with her work. She is a sociology professor at the University of Houston and I'm here in Houston as a Houstonian. That has nothing to do with my love of Brene Brown. I would love her anywhere. But she writes about the, the guilt and the shame and experiences that you may have in your life and just owning your story and moving past that and really channeling that into a powerful setting for your own growth and development. So I think as, as teachers, that's a fantastic tool to have at our tool belt. You know, we mentioned vulnerability a little bit earlier. She talks about that and the power in being vulnerable, whether it's with your students, with your employer, with your spouses, there's so much to be gained from that. And so reading her, her pivotal book was called Daring Greatly. And then she came out a few years later with Rising Strong. And those are, they're two Brene books that I, I absolutely love. Um, another author I'd love to mention, and I'm sure everyone's heard of Malcolm Gladwell. Mm-hmm. And the reason I wanted to mention him was on my first day of teaching, my principal, Dr. Craig Mullenix, mentioned Malcolm Gladwell and Outliers. And he talked about our campus and specifically the math department. And he said, you know, here's the results of everybody's standardized tests in math. And here is our school. And the dot was not down low, but it was way up high on the graph that he showed. And he said, we at this campus are outliers. We're doing X, Y, and Z. This is what our teachers are talking about in our PLCs. This is what our students are doing during their class time. And it's really fueling their growth. And I was, I was intrigued by that, you know, absolutely. On the very first day as a teacher, you want to hear that you're at a good campus. And so I went back and I read Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers and just to see. And the funny thing, as I was thinking about this, the books have a similar theme. It's what it, he specifically talks about people or organizations, what in their background or their upbringing set them apart ever so slightly that they could tap into that as power and really succeed. So yeah. yeah, I'm a big, big fan of reading about strength and vulnerability. Yeah. So I, I, it's funny, Brene Brown was mentioned in a previous podcast we did with the folks from Refuge Coffee in Clarkston. Um, Kitty, uh, Kitty Murray and Walt Anderson mentioned the, her book Into the Wilderness, which I immediately got a copy of and read. And yeah, vulnerability was a crucial part of it. And it was a great book. I haven't read any of her others yet, but I'm glad you reminded me. Um, and then I'm familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's work, but I have not read Outliers. So, uh, yeah, I will, that one's like, that one is a great one. So yeah, great. I will add both of those to, um, to the written version of the blog version of the, of the podcast episode and to my own personal library selfishly as well. So that's great. And then, uh, you know, again, I'll just stress that the seven steps, um, really, really is a great resource for those, um, that are looking for information there. So one more question and uh, love to know how people can learn more about the work you're doing um, in, in both of these worlds. Absolutely. So the best source of information for that would be my Twitter handle. It's at Anna teaches ELLs, which if you're not capitalizing thing, it looks like Anna teach cells. 
So that's kind of fun. Um, but <laughs> I, just wrote, I just wrote it down and I noticed that as you were saying it. There you go. So I'm, I'm constantly sharing little tips from the book. I go and I have the pleasure and I love this part about my job is after I do trainings, I can go and visit some of the classrooms where I'm training in. So, so I, or, you know, the teachers that I get to meet, if they open up their classrooms to me, absolutely. I want to be there. And so I share lots of classroom photos and how actual low teachers now and ESL teachers are using the seven step strategies actively on the daily. And so those go out there as well as just information on conferences I might be presenting at or conferences that sidelets education is, is, you know, taking part in. So that's the second piece. It would just be the sidelets ed Twitter handle, our Facebook page, our website. Those are always going to have updated information on where we're training and where we're presenting. Great. Awesome. And yeah, there's so much great information on the Silas website and also uh, on Twitter as well. And, and I follow you and them and always learning a ton there. So I'm glad you mentioned that. And with that, Anna, it has been a pleasure. I feel like we talked for a long time, but quite frankly, I could have talked for another five hours about this given our, our sort of similar backgrounds. And hopefully, um, you know, both sort of audiences, whether you're a foreign language teacher or a LOAT teacher or you're an ESL teacher, um, you took something out of this. Uh, episode. So thank you so much for joining us. You're so welcome. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.